Turn over to him. He's probably lurking in the shadows. There he is. I was hanging out with my peeps. You like him? Huh? Say, where'd you get those? They were sitting on a chair in back there. Finders keepers, right? I like those. Yeah. Is that one of my peeps I hear from? Yeah. Did we shake hands yet today? Okay. Guy's into worship, I tell you. It's worshiping the wrong people, though. Welcome. Glad you're here. I see Gail and Lynn. That was a short month. They said they'd be gone for a month. Good to have you here. We have some people visiting today. We have people here for the very first time. I'm so excited you drove me to drink. No, it's great to have you here. It's going to be a wonderful morning. And uh, when we leave, uh, the sun will be shining. If it hasn't already gone down. So today's scripture you may have seen on the screen. Uh, We are going to drill down on the book of James. Uh, A few weeks ago I started just a little part two uh, short series, uh, two-part series I should say, entitled Growing and Maturing. And it could very well be titled The Marks of a Mature Christian Person. Now, on the screen it's going to say Marks of a Christian Person. And if you're taking notes today, I want you to insert the word mature Christian person. It could have been entitled Growing and Growing Up. Or it could be entitled Growing Up rather than Giving Up. I want to zero in on the main theme of the book of James and also the main theme of this whole title of Growing and Maturity. Without a doubt, probably the number one cause of problems in each of our little personal worlds, is immaturity. We get ourselves into all kinds of problems by saying immature things, by making immature decisions, and by acting in immature ways. And because of that, we just need to grow up. You see, God's will for every person is that they grow God's will for every person is that they continue to grow. If you were to go to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, you'd hear the writer saying, let us press on to maturity. In some uh, versions of the scripture, it says to perfection. In essence, God is saying we need to grow up. You know, that's one of the purposes of faith community, is to help everybody grow, grow spiritually, grow emotionally, Grow mentally in every way. Why? For balanced Christian living marked by maturity. Oh God, give us that pleasure. Give us that wonderful gift of maturity amongst the believers. So what is maturity? And we use the word and we talk about it and we try to teach it. But how do we know? How do you know? How do I know when we've reached that point of arrival? And how do we know that we're there? 
Well, first off, just quickly, let me just let me tell you a couple things here about maturity before I tell you some things about maturity. First off, I want to tell you what maturity is not. Maturity is not age. It has nothing to do with how long you've lived. It has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian. You can be a Christian believer for 50 years and not be mature. I don't know if you've ever seen the bumper sticker that says, I may be getting older, but I refuse to grow up. I've met some of those people. I've pastored some of them. The 50 and 60-year-old kids. Maturity has nothing to do with your age. Now, granted, God's ideal is that as we grow older, we get more mature. That is a nice idea, but that's not always the case. Maturity is not appearance. Some people just look mature. They just kind of age that way. Some people just look like they might be more spiritual than the rest of us. They look kind of dignified. You look at them and say, well, they're, they're kind of holy. They're, they're, they must be mature. And for the rest of us, it's just tough luck. The fact is, you can look real spiritual and not be spiritual at all. It has nothing to do with your appearance. Aren't you glad? Oh, no, I'm looking out here. I need a better response than that. Aren't you glad? Yeah, get with it. Maturity has nothing to do with achievement. Like what you accomplish. What you've done, where you've been, who you've been with, and how you've done that. I mean, you can accomplish a lot and still be a very immature person. You don't have to be mature to make millions of dollars or to achieve great honors and be recognized by your peers and all the rest of it. It's not about achievement. Maturity is not, has nothing to do, as a matter of fact, with academic prowess. Like how many degrees that you've earned. And some of us are educated way beyond our intelligence. How, how, many, how much education have you completed? How many, how, much book smarts, or how many book smarts do you really have? And God says maturity is another A. It's attitude. Attitude is what makes the difference. It's, in essence, your character. D.L. Moody once said this, quote, Character is what you are in the dark. Recognition or reputation is what people say about you. Character is what God says about you. God says it's your attitude that determines whether you are mature or not. And God wants you to grow up, and he wants you to have Christ-like attitudes. So how do you measure spiritual maturity? Well, not by comparing yourself to other people, but by comparing yourself to this, the Word of God. In the book of James, we have what I call a manual on maturity. If you want to be a mature believer, dig in with the pastor of the first church and listen to him as he expounds on this whole idea of maturity. And you'll see it in every one of the five chapters. You'll read it over and over. We're going to highlight some of the, some of the real gems. The word mature itself comes from the Greek. It's a word teleos, and it's transla translated mature, complete, or perfect. Perfect in the complete sense. And James uses this word five times in five chapters. So that tells me it's very important. 
That's That's telling me there is a theme underlying all of that teaching in the book of James. So James is a manual on how to grow up and how to be mature. And so James gives us, I think, five markers of maturity. Five things that need to be there if indeed we're going to claim maturity. I'm going to go to James chapter 1 to get started and have your Bible. We can have it open to James 1. We're going to flip around a little bit. If you have your app, that'd be great. You can follow. Most of the references will come from the NIV. I have a few from other, uh, other versions. But here in James 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, you remember the last time when we opened the series, we talked about it wasn't if, it was when. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must, <laughs> perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Some great words there, and we're going to pick that apart a little bit. How do you, let's get personal, how do you handle trials and testings? You see, James says the first test of maturity is how do you relax, how do you relax to the problems in your life? Do they blow you away? Do you get nervous? Do you get uptight? Do you get negative? Do you lash out? Do you grumble? Do you gripe? How do you handle problems? Here's a little lesson for us today. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a life. A lot of people are hanging on to that religious tag. And that's what it is, a tag. We know that Christianity is not a tag It's a life. Now hear me carefully. It is having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have come that you might have... I have come that you might have... And that you might have it. So Christianity isn't about a tag. It's about a life. And it's not just about a life. It's about an abundant life. Pressed down. Running over a life. Now, this is something that the rest of the message is going, to, is going to hang on. So get a hold of this hinge. If he said, I've come that you might have life, I want to say this. Life equals problems. I got some agreement there. And part of life means solving problems. Part of life means facing problems. Part of life means tackling the problem or the problems with the right attitude, the attitude that is going to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus himself. So let me ask again. Let's get personal. What is your natural attitude? That is, what's your natural bent when things just don't go right? And when you get irritated, how do you handle that? Are you negative? Mostly? Or are you positive? Are you basically a supportive person? Or are you a skeptical person? 
Is your life filled with gratitude or grumbling? What's the, what's the label people have put on you? Are you affirmative or are you just plain angry most of the time and you find that if you just stay that way, it usually works best because the problems just keep coming anyway? And you'll remember the roller coaster illustration, I think, uh, from a couple of weeks ago. Here's what James said in chapter 1. Now we slide down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Get that one in your notes. So here's my question as we wrap up this marker. Are you positive under pressure? And if you're not quite sure how to handle this, or, but you want to remember this, it might do you well to just make a note of this and make this a personal, uh, introspective message this morning, just for you. Just draw the chalk circle around you, and you deal with the people that are inside that circle. How do I deal with problems? Is it mostly negative, or is it positive? Am I positive under pressure? The markers of a mature person. A mature believer, secondly, is sensitive and loving toward others. If you jump over to James chapter 2 and verse 8, here's what we read. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are what? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing what? See, a mature Christian is sensitive to other people. He or she, they don't just see their own needs. That person sees other people's needs. He understands when someone's hurting. He's not just interested in himself. You see, our children, God bless them, when they are immature and they haven't really developed in any of these areas quite yet, they only see themselves. So when there's something they see, their natural bent is, I want that, or I want this. Yeah, but maybe your brother wants it, or maybe that other playmate wants it, or maybe it's not time for you to have it. I don't care about anybody else. I want this. And, and, and that attitude, by the way, is a, not a good attitude. And, of course, you all know if you're parents <coughs> that that came from the grandparents. Funny how it skips a generation. Hmm. God says that love, being, that is being interested in others and being engaged with others, and being involved with others, and investing in others is a mark of maturity. But James gets real specific in the first six verses of chapter 2. I'm going to just give you my translation. You can call this the crossweight version. He says, don't show favoritism. Don't be a snob. Don't look down on other people. I've met some Christians that show me very clearly why a lot of people I've met don't want to be Christians. Don't judge by appearance. Don't insult people and don't exploit people. And the second test of of this maturity thing is, is love then. 
How do you, how do I, how do we treat other people? This is so important. Paul said, I may win all kinds of people to the Lord. I may build great church buildings. This is the modern version. I may be on television. I may have my name scattered all over the world. I may give my money to the poor. But listen, he said, if I do not have love, I'm as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal because it just doesn't amount to anything. You can have all the Christian bragging rights you desire. If you don't have love in your heart for other people, it amounts to a big, fat zero. In Matthew chapter 25, you need to go back there if you would, just take my word for it. But in verses 31 to 46, Jesus is saying, in essence, at that particular judgment that he is, that he is uh, explaining, he said, we'll stand before the Lord and the Lord will say, well, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. And then we'll say, well, well when, Lord? When, 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 when did we do all that? When were you sick and we visited you? And when were you in prison? And when were you thirsty and we gave you drink? Jesus said, and as much as you've done this, under the least of these, the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. It's interesting to me that in that portion of Scripture, Matthew 25, the one thing we'll be judged for for sure is how we treated other people. That's so easy for Christians and the Christian church to just kind of veer away from that one and slip over into some other teaching of the New Testament. Not how many Bible verses we knew. Not how many perfect attendance strips we had. Not how many times we were in church. Not what the great reputation was that we had as Christian leaders, but how we treated other people. So important. And that's marker number two. The third mark of a mature person is he or she has mastered his mouth. We all rise for the benediction now. In the third chapter of James, verse 2. I'm reading from the King James Version. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, complete, mature, acceptable in the sight of God, right attitude, and also able to bridle the whole body. That's an important verse. Here's what James is saying that the mature Christian person is like. He's one who has tamed the tongue, and because of that, he has self-control. We've heard this saying, get it, under, get it together. Get it under control. I love this one. Deal with it. People can't deal with it, folks, if they don't have the equipment to deal with. If they don't understand these important teachings of the Word of God. The first thing a doctor says when you go for your annual checkup is, how you been doing? How you been feeling? Stick out your tongue. My mother told me to never do that. And so you stick out your tongue, and he puts a piece of lumber in your mouth about four feet long. Why does he do that? To check your general health. 
He can tell a lot from that, not everything. I know I've got medical people here, and they say, don't get too carried away with this. But if, he does, if there's no reason for it, then why, don't, why do they do it? So they can send you a bill, of course. Okay, just keep that. I'm glad you're with me on this, because I want you to keep that analogy fresh in your mind. God does the same thing spiritually. Let me check your tongue. In World War II, there was a saying, loose lips do what? Sink ships. And loose lips kill relationships. And loose lips destroy lives. And loose lips can upset an organization. And loose lips hurt. And loose lips are also referred to as gossip. How many of you have ever heard that word? It's an old Greek word. Say, how would you define gossip? Here's how I define it. Hearing something you like about somebody you don't. Boy, the room got quiet. It's mouth-to-mouth recitation. Don't, shh, shh, don't tell anybody. I'm just telling you. And I know you won't repeat it. Just like I won't. <laughs> the best way to handle that is that you, you want to... You, 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 can you keep a secret? And they're, they're all ears now. And then they'll say, yeah, they really want to hear it, but yeah, and then walk away and say, so can I. You keep a secret? Yeah, I can too. Self-control comes from tongue control. I know you were going to say it. I know you wanted to say it. I know you said it a hundred times in your head, but just don't say it. So let's say that together. Self-control is tongue control. Self-control. Hmm. We get ourselves into so much trouble at what we say, what we think, the way we speak, the way we respond audibly. It's, 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 it's remarkable. And in James chapter 3, we're given several illustrations. And those illustrations are not just picturesque little graphic illustrations, those are really powerful. He says, James says, that our t- the, the way he used the words and the way he painted pictures for, word pictures for us and the way he describes things are just so, so wonderful and so powerful at the same time. He says our tongue is like a rudder. He says our tongue is like a bit in the horse's mouth. It's like a spark that starts a fire. It's like a snake. It's like a spring. He says, you put a little bit. How many of you know how small a bit is that goes in a horse's mouth? I mean, compared to the size of that animal. Hmm? And that little bit, that little piece of steel, I guess it is, can control the direction of the horse. 
It can control the behavior of the horse. The little rudder on a boat, how many know what the rudder is? That can control the direction of the boat. Your tongue, which by size is very insignificant to the rest of your body, size-wise, controls your life. What you say directs your life. What you say can destroy your life. What you say can delight people's lives or it can discourage people's lives. You see, your tongue is powerful. It's a powerful force for good or for evil. And and while I'm here, I'm just going to do my usual little rabbit trail. Be very, very careful and be more careful than even the last time I warned you about this of what you put on Twitter, social media, texting, what you type in on, on, I can't say it to your Facebook, um, Those are the bravest unseen warriors in the world, the Facebook warriors. Stuff they will say that they would never say to your face. I call it the I can't can't say it to your Facebook. They, They just can't. And I don't care how many times you showered. I don't care if you ran out of shampoo. I don't care what the kids ate for breakfast. I don't care what you burnt for supper last night. I represent the rest of the world, by the way. Not only I don't care, (laughs) nobody else does either. Be careful. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, hey, I I just load up and let her go. I mean, I just, I just say what's on my mind. I just let her go. And most of those people that I've met, and I could tell you some stories that would, they're kind, of, they're kind of proud about it. Why? Because they, they can be frank, they can be upfront, they say what's on their mind. Here's what I've found. Usually there's not very much on their mind. And maybe what's on their mind shouldn't be said. And I've had people withstand me to the face and say, I ought to give you a piece of my mind. And I want to say, I think you've run out of pieces. <laughs> the Bible says that is not frankness. That's not bravery. That's immaturity. And a lot of people need a large dose of tactfulness. Now, I just want to clear the air here. Nobody in this room, nobody under the sound of this voice. But a lot of people do, just so that when you go out in the world and you meet those people, you'll know how to deal with them. And that's what they're like. Thank you. That's what they're like. Thank you. Great illustration, perfect timing. Love you to death. And then I, I, I like the people who say, well, I, I would have, I, I mean, I don't agree with you. And, and I, I have got this position and I'm, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm staying here and I've dug my heels in. And, you know, that's one of my great virtues is I'm just, I've just got this stubbornness to me. That, that actually is, is the theme song of a lot of Christians today. I shall not be moved. 
I like what the Super Bowl winning NFL coach, dedicated follower of Jesus, Tony Dungy, quoted as saying, stubbornness is a virtue if you are right. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Now, over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome negative talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. If you're a note-taker and circler, circle the word any. Here's what Paul's saying. Watch what you say. When you talk, don't be the hero of every story. Don't just talk to build yourself up in your own image. You say things to build other people up. Say things to bring them up. Say things to meet their needs. Say things to show interest, real interest, in where they're coming from and what they need. And if it doesn't build somebody or if it can't help and encourage somebody, don't say it. That's easy. That's an easy rule. You say, no, no, Bob, I've got no, but it's the truth. Listen carefully, listen carefully, both ears and your heart, even if it's the truth. If it's not going to build that person, just don't say it. If it doesn't build up, don't say it. And I want to tell you something. That is a true mark of maturity. Not knowing when to speak, knowing when not to speak. Some of you know I've been in the public sector for 20-some years now, dealing with all kinds of issues and criticisms and problems. And I'm sorry about your taxes. I, I pay them too. And I had another seasoned veteran say to me the other day, is this why we do this? Do have to withstand that kind of ignorance and to listen to those kind of accusations and threats? And in this world today, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what you're getting. I said, nope. Better just to keep quiet. A mature Christian person manages his mouth, or her mouth. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If you don't and can't master your mouth, you've missed the point entirely. (laughs) Everything else might be a perfect A+. But if you haven't gotten this one down, you aren't going to pass the course. If we slip back to James chapter 1, I said we'd be all over the place, and verse 26 Here's what James says, if anyone considers himself religious or a person of faith, as we would say, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, this is interesting, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless, or your testimony of faith is worthless. How I've seen that work so many times, and how many times I've had people come to me and say, you're a pastor, right? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. You know, I was talking with him or her the other day, and I can't believe the stuff that was coming out of his mouth. And he, I love the way the world says it, claims to be a Christian. I said, you can't judge him by the mouth, although you really can. 
Because the Bible also says, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. So when you open your mouth, you don't have to even tell anybody what's in the heart. It's coming out. It's coming out just like a neon sign. So if anyone calls himself a person of faith and doesn't keep a tight rein on the tongue, he deceives himself, and that testimony of faith is worthless. That's tough talk. This pastor doesn't beat around the bush. Look, if I've mentioned a hundred or memorized a hundred verses of Scripture, I don't care if I memorized a thousand, and I've been through every Bible study in the book, and I go to church and never miss a service, I don't, I don't, Call in sick, I crawl in sick. But I am a, I am a gossip and a slanderer and a loose-tongued person. My testimony of Christian faith is absolutely worthless to myself, to my church, and to the world at large. If I spread rumors, it's worthless. If I'm always saying things that are not always accurate, it is worthless. If I just exaggerate beyond exaggeration, it's worthless. If I just speak impulsively, you say, oh, I just, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, you can't pull it back. It's too late now. Damage done. Sorry. You're in damage control now. And it's worthless. The test of maturity is to manage your mouth so that no cor- corrupt communication or negative talk comes out of that mouth. Now, that's a pretty tall order right there. And if I were to say, I wonder how many of us who name the name of Christ here sincerely, uh, I wonder how many of us would be under condemnation right now, according to this verse. I don't want to say that because the guy standing in front of you has to stand up too and answer. Then I go back to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Here's what he says. Speak the truth in love. Do you know what that means? Of course you do. It means you've got to speak the truth with the right attitude. You can't beat people over the head just because you know the truth and you've accepted the truth and you have the truth and you represent the truth. It's got to be the right attitude. It's got to be the right timing. It's got to be the right place. It's got to be in the right location. It has to have the right motive. It's got to be fueled by all those things. The, this Bible, this book, you know what I love about the book? It's so practical. You say, oh, I read the Bible. I can't understand it. Oh, my word. Show me something you can't understand. Well, you, you, you want to know how many toes on the beast in Daniel and all that stuff? Well, maybe you don't understand that. But how about we spend a year in the book of James trying to live that? And then come tell me, is it practical or is it not? This book is so practical. It makes so much sense. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. <laughs> It's like I've told you before, Barbara and I knew someone who read the Bible 90-some times over a period of years. And the best of our knowledge, we're not the judge, died without Christ. doesn't matter how much Bible you know or how much you know about the Bible. If your attitude is not like Christ, you're missing the point completely. The fourth marker of a mature Christian person is that person is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. In James 4 now, verse 1, it starts out, What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle? Where? Where? Where do these things, where does the battle take place? Within you. Where do the fights start? Within. Where do the quarrels start? Within. Where do the disagreements start? Within. Where do the arguments start? Within. Where do the breakups start? Within. I didn't say it. Another great pastor said it. His name is James. He said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's talking about conflict, folks. I know. Oh, Bob, can't we just, can't we just, can't we just always talk about love, 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 love? And just to be nice and fluffy. And just, just be light and funny. There's a place for that. I'm quoting James. I'm not quoting Bob. James says this is all about conflict. He says there, and he's asking a rhetorical question. Of course he knows the answer. He's saying there are inner quarrels. Have you ever had the inner quarrel? Have you ever had an inner struggle? Have you ever had an inner fight? I should have said, have you had one in the past seven days? Who hasn't? They come from our inner desires. You want something, you don't get it. You kill and covet because you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight and you don't have it because you don't ask God. Ask yourself this question, and this will give us a real good springboard. Ask yourself this question right now in the, in the quiet of your own heart. Am I a peacemaker? If that one doesn't fit, try this question. Am I a troublemaker? Please don't look at your spouse. Do I like to argue? In our home, we don't call it argue anymore. We call it debate. Am I a contentious person? No matter what you say, I'm against it. Do I get my feelings hurt? Some people say, I'm very sensitive. I'm very fragile. My, my, my whole feelings are very fragile. So you may say something or do something or infer something, and, and I, could, I might just get hurt, Bob. Do I get defensive real easily? Ask yourself this question. Do I hurt other people's feelings ever? Am I a peacemaker? Or am I a troublemaker? You see, the mark of a mature Christian is the lack of conflict in his own life. I wish we could just say zero conflict. I don't know who's there, but if anybody. Paul told the Corinthians. <laughs> Paul spoke kind of... Uh, Directly, too, have you notice? I'm going to give you my translation of what Paul said to the Corinthians. You guys are nothing but a bunch of babies. That's why I'm writing this letter. You know better. I taught you better. You started off better than this. You know what you should do. You know which way you should go. You know what God has said about this. 
And you have messed it up so badly, I can't even imagine how badly it's messed up and that you could have gone this far off. And he just says, you're babies. I thought you were growing in grace and I thought you would have been developed by now and be mature and complete and at that stage of, of really enjoying the new life in Christ and you're still little babies in the faith. They were arguing over everything. They argued about the Lord's Supper. They were basically making that a drunken brawl. They, they were arguing about, about spiritual gifts. He set that record straight in chapter 12. They were arguing about leadership. Now, who's in charge? Who should be in charge? How should we handle this? Wow. They were arguing about everything. And that, my friends, is a mark. And it's in the Scripture for a purpose for us to see that that is a mark of immaturity. Why is there so much conflict in the world? People are asking me this almost every day now. Some people tell me they don't watch any news anymore. They don't listen to any newscasts of any kind. They don't read any newspapers. Because there's so much stuff going on in the world. Why is there so much conflict? Why, are there, why is there so much conflict in modern marriages? Why is there conflict, my friend, where you work? Why is there conflict still between you and that former friend? And Why is there conflict between you and another Christian? Maybe somebody sitting in this very room. Why is there conflict? I'm not saying there is, but why is there conflict between you or me and God? Why is there conflict? Well, James says there are two reasons for conflict. In James 4, 3, he says, When you ask, you do not receive. But you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Right? So the first uh, cause of conflict is selfishness. Write it down. Get it in your notes. When I want what I want, then I'm going to have conflict with somebody else who gets in the way, and that issue is my pride. Then also in James 4, down in verse 11 and 12, we read, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or who judges them speaks against the law and judges it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I love that. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? If you're a judging kind of person, you need that verse, and so do I. The other source of conflict, other than selfishness, is judging others, or just write it down this way, being judgmental. And all of us are guilty of being judgmental at one time or another. Let's fess up to that. He says, don't judge people. He says, if you're doing this, you're asking for a real fight. And you're always finding fault, and you're always stirring up strife, and you'll always be spreading rumors, so just don't judge. Now, why should I not judge anybody? Here, I'm going to give you three reasons. You need them too, okay? We're all in this kettle of fish together. Here's why I shouldn't judge you. Here's why you shouldn't judge me. Number one, because I'm not God. 
When you judge somebody, it's playing God. There's only one judge. There's only one lawgiver. And that's God himself. I'm really glad, aren't you? The second reason I should not judge is only God has all the facts. I don't have them. You don't have them. I, don't, I can't tell you what all the facts are. I don't have them. I better cease and desist the whole idea of doing the judging then. And the third reason that I should not judge you is I don't know your motives. And you shouldn't judge me because you don't know mine either. I can't tell what's in another person's heart because I don't know. Only God Almighty knows. Say, well, they said that they... No, that's fine. That's verbal testimony. But only God knows what's really in that heart. So only God has the right to judge, and he has all the facts, and he knows everything, and he knows all the motives, and he sees inside our heart, and he's got the truth, and he can judge. But we're limited in our insight, and we don't have right to judge. So God says selfishness, looking after ourselves, we're number one, and we're kind of the standard for doing the judging, I guess, and judgmentalism caused conflict. The fourth characteristic of a mature person is they're a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. And the fifth marker of a mature Christian person is he's patient and prayerful. I'm sorry I had to use that patient word. Because I go over to James chapter 5, now we're in the last chapter, verse 7 and 8, and he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now he's writing now, coming down to the end of the letter, and he's still saying, Be patient. Behold the husbandman or the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth and had long patience for it until he receives the early and then the latter rain. Be you also patient. Patient again. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Mm. And then in that same fifth chapter, if you drop down to verse 16, you read some words like this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Now, if anybody was patient, it was our friend Elijah. Elijah was patient, notice, and he was prayerful. And that is a mark of maturity, and all of us need to strive for that. Those are the two key words in chapter 5. Patient, that's mentioned five times. Prayer. That's mentioned seven times in chapter 5. The mark of a mature person is that they're patient and prayerful. And those two go hand in hand. They express an attitude. They express a dependence upon God. They, they, they express your inner self and the situation and condition of your heart within. What's he saying? Be patient. Be prayerful. And he gives the illustration of the farmer. Now, look, if anybody has to be patient, it's the farmer. Around here, it's the blueberry people. I mean, seriously. You do a lot of waiting. You do a lot of hoping. You go out and have a little talk to the bees. I mean, you, you, it, it's just such a broad science. And so the farmer plants a seed. He waits. He prays. He hopes. He expects. He waits. He waits. He waits. No, you don't get overnight crops. You know, just like a farmer has to wait, James says, sometimes we have to wait. Hey, folks, did you ever notice this? Sometimes we have to wait. 
Anyone ever notice that? Mm. Mm. We have to wait on God for his answer. Hello? Mm? We have to wait on God for a miracle. We have to wait on God to work something in our lives. We have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And when we're done waiting, we have to wait some more. But patience is a mark of maturity, and the only way you learn patience is by waiting. We must be patient and and prayerful toward one another. Now, you remember when your children, if you have children, finally learned the difference between no. Oh, they're still learning. Okay. Well, after they hit about 50, they might get it. No, but when they finally learned the difference between no and not yet. For a long time, they thought, when you said not yet, they thought, well, that meant you're not, they're not going to get to do what they wanted to do. They thought it just mean simply no. And all it meant when you said it was not yet. Many times God will say to you, not yet. And he does not mean no. He does not intend for it to mean no. He doesn't mean he's not going to answer you or your prayer. He's saying, you've got to wait. I want you to develop. I want you to grow. I want you to learn to be patient. I want you to mature into completeness. Hmm. Now, here are the test questions for this short series. I told you there'd be a test, so I know you came prepared. Many of you have been up half the night studying. So... It looks like it. But anyway, here are the test questions for this short series. And by the way, it's going to be a self-quiz. So you are going to ask yourself the questions. Oh, and you are going to answer by yourself these questions. Quiz question number one. How do I handle problems? I'm going to give you some choices. Uptight, negative, grumbling, griping, complaining. Oh, or positive. This isn't about your spouse. This isn't about the guy in front of you, behind you, around you, or the people that aren't here. This is your quiz uh, question. How do I handle problems? uh, Quiz question number two. Am I sensitive to other people? This is a tough one. Their needs, their desires, their cares, their hurts. Or do I just see myself, or I see myself always first? I pray a lot, but I pray for myself. I pray for stuff I want. I pray for stuff that I want to see happen, that I want to see change, that I want to see affected. Or am I praying for others? Third quiz question. You're doing a great job, by the way. Do I manage my mouth? Question number four. Oh, no. Basically, have I learned to put a muzzle on it when I need to? Some people just think they have to speak, whether they're saying anything or not. You know, you get a juicy tidbit of gossip. It's tempting. You say, knowledge is power, and I'm going to share this. And I'm going to say to Pastor Bob, oh, can you pray about this? (laughs) I'll pray for you to get your heart right. See, you can damage people just by innuendo. You didn't even mean to. I didn't. uh, Quiz question number four. Am I a troublemaker? Slash, 
Am I a peacemaker? Do I stir things up? Have I got a hair trigger temper? That's ah, just me. I just blow off. It's okay after a while. I got this temper thing. and I... Boy, I can get just agitated. The term today is, I can get ticked off so quickly. The thing I fear there is if you're one of those people, you also probably carry grudges. You're not soon to forget. And you keep nursing that bitterness because you're trying to protect yourself. Let no corrupt communication, no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Only that which builds up for edification of others. And then the fifth quiz question. How long can I wait for an answer before giving up? How long? How long? Maybe God has every intention of giving it, whatever it is, whatever it is, but he's waiting to teach me maturity. Would you repeat these words after me? Because I want to close with these. Asking ourselves this question, would you say with me, how do I rate? This hasn't been an easy message. But it is one I really, honestly need. Me too. Why? Because I want to continually be growing and maturing. I'm going to invite the worship team to grace the platform. And I want to just say to everyone seated here, before we move on and worshiping the Lord more, we have connect cards in the seat pocket in front of you or near you. And if you have a need, a spiritual need today, something that you want someone to meet with you, talk with you, someone to know so they can be of help. Or maybe you're getting ready to take your first step of faith towards God and and trust Jesus as your Savior. We'd like to know that. We don't need all the things checked off and marked off. Just your name and some way to contact you and connect with you. That's why we call it Connect Card. And just leave it with one of the pastors before you go or put it on uh, in one of the boxes, uh, the offering boxes in the entryway. Uh, or hand it to someone that's seated near you today, because we're here to help. We're here to invite you and to encourage you and to challenge you to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.